Anybody else to uh, turn with me in your Bibles, if you have one, uh, to Mark chapter 1. There should also be a Bible in the pew. Uh, and listen, if, if you don't have a Bible at home, uh, if you don't have a copy of God's Word that you can read and refer to, what we would say to you is please take that one home. Uh, grab a Bible out of the pew. Let that be uh, your gift from Back Creek Church. And please use it. Please read it uh, and discover what the Lord has to say to you in it. Uh, we're starting a new series today in the Gospel of Mark. We're calling it The Ministry of Jesus in the Gospel of Mark. And we plan to cover, uh, we're kind of ambitious, we're going to try to cover 16 chapters in 16 weeks, which will take us all the way from today up to Easter, and we'll arrive at the resurrection uh, on Easter Sunday morning. I'm going to go ahead and, and pray and ask the Lord's blessing on our time together in His Word. Let's pray. Lord God, you inspired this word to be written through a, an ordinary man like us, a man named John Mark. Lord, you, you prepared him for this task. You gave him everything he needed, including the eyewitness testimony of the Apostle Peter. Uh, Lord, you have preserved and kept his account of the life and ministry of our Savior so that we may grow in our knowledge and love for him and so that we may benefit from it in countless ways. And so we commit this series and this time together in your word to you for your purposes. Lord, do in us and speak to us what you would have to say today. Lord, we do love you and ask that you would bring about transformation in our hearts and in our lives through our time together around your word and around your table. And we ask all these things for Jesus' glory. Amen. So the other day, uh, we took our three oldest children, they're all girls, 12, 9, and 6, uh, to the movie, Mary Poppins Returns. And I was excited about the movie, but I was not prepared for the opening sequence and then the credits, which were very much like an older movie where the credits are all at the beginning. I was not prepared to find tears streaming down my face. I was kind of confused about what was happening inside of me. You know, we men are not always in touch with our emotions and, and what's actually happening to us. But what I realized over the course of the movie is the reason why I had such an emotional response to uh, this film, Mary Poppins, is because I was about to spend time with a person, albeit a fictional, make-believe person, that I had deeply missed and didn't realize it. She was my friend when I was a kid, and she taught me a lot, including about how a spoonful of sugar makes the medicine go down. And it touched me to think that I was going to get to spend another couple of hours with Mary Poppins. And our Advent series in Isaiah 9-6 was like that for me uh, with regard to a not made-up person, a not uh, make-believe person, but, but a real person, the Lord Jesus Christ. See, the reality is everything that we do here at Bat Creek is intended to be all about who? Jesus. Uh, but I think that, that it's possible for, for me as your pastor and for you in all of our reading and teaching and studying and applying and ministering and serving to get caught up in those things rather than in the person who is our greatest treasure. We need to be reminded and renewed and refocused and refreshed in him. And, of course, we worked through those four glorious names that were prophesied about Jesus by the prophet Isaiah about 700 years before he was born, over 700 years before he was born. Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, 
Prince of Peace. And as we worked through those Old Testament declarations about our New Testament revelation of who God is in Christ, I found myself longing for more. I wanted to learn more about him. I wanted to be more with him. I wanted more of him. And that desire, together with the prompting of the Holy Spirit, led me to the Gospel of Mark, where it's my prayer that we will grow in our knowledge of and love for Jesus, and that we will realize that we can never, ever get enough of him, and we can never, ever share enough of him with other people. Like the other three Gospels, Mark was written anonymously. So all four Gospels that we have, they're written without the declaration of the person writing who they are. The the identity is not revealed in the text, but what we have for Mark and for all three of the other Gospels is very, very early, second century attestation, um, reception, and agreement that this Gospel was written by a man named John Mark. And who was John Mark? Well, John Mark was a contemporary of both the Apostle Peter and the Apostle Paul. In Acts chapter 12, Peter, the Apostle, has been arrested for preaching the gospel. So he's in prison, and there's this prayer meeting at Mark's mama's house. And there's a bunch of Christians gathered there, and what they're praying for is Peter's release. They want Peter to be released from prison, and Mark is present at this prayer meeting at his mom's house. And an angel comes, frees Peter in response to their prayer. He shows up at the prayer meeting, and they don't believe it. Which is convicting, because that's a lot of the time how we respond when the Lord answers prayer. Or we just forgot that we asked for what he's answered in the first place. Mark also accompanied Paul and Barnabas on a missionary journey from Jerusalem to Antioch. And later on to Cyprus. But when they got to a place called Perga in Pamphylia, uh, Mark takes off and leaves. And, And we don't know exactly why. Maybe there was a conflict. Maybe he was afraid. We don't know. But we do know is that the Apostle Paul um, thought that it was an abandonment. That Mark was leaving him and Barnabas and the mission to go back to where it was comfortable in Jerusalem. And that caused some tension for a while. You know, John Mark was kind of like the Yoko Ono of Paul and Barnabas. And he broke up the band for a little while. I thought y'all would think that was funnier. But but thankfully, it seemed that there was reconciliation and future partnership. As Paul mentions Mark in some of his letters, he calls him a comfort and useful in ministry. Mark is often referred to as Peter's interpreter because he had a close relationship with the apostle Peter. And early on in church history, people are going to begin to attest, and scholars today agree, that what the gospel of Mark is, is Peter's eyewitness testimony of the life and ministry of Jesus through the pen of John Mark, his friends. It's encouraging to me that the Lord used Peter the apostle who denied him on the night and morning of his crucifixion, and Mark, who abandoned Jesus' mission and left Paul and Barnabas in Perga, that he used these two unlikely fellows to produce this amazing gospel. And what that says to me is that there's hope for me and for you too. Mark's gospel is the earliest written. It's written probably in the early 50s A.D., um, And it was probably the primary source for both Matthew and Luke as they wrote their Gospels. It's also the shortest Gospel, and it's very efficient. Mark likes to get to the point, and I appreciate that. His goal throughout is to show us who Jesus is and what Jesus came to do. And we're not going to stand for the reading of God's Word this morning, because we're going to kind of read as we move 
through the text. But two questions I want us to have in our minds this morning as we approach God's word. The first is, how does Jesus' ministry start? And the second is, why does it matter? How does Jesus' ministry start, and why does it matter? The first uh, thing that we see here is that Jesus' ministry starts with preparation. Jesus' ministry starts with preparation. Look with me at verses one, uh, Mark chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey, and he preached saying, After me comes one who is mightier than I, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Mark wastes no time in telling us who Jesus is. First, he says, I have some good news to announce, to proclaim to you. That's what that word that he uses right at the, very, the beginning of the gospel. The word is euangelion in, in the Greek. It means good news, and it was typically used as the proclamation for the coronation or the arrival of a new king. He says, I have good news to tell you about a particular person, and this person is Jesus the Christ. The Messiah, the anointed one, the chosen one, the long-awaited Messiah who would be the yes and amen to all of God's promises in the Old Testament. And that good news, Jesus, that is the Christ, is also the Son of the living God. And just to make sure his readers understand what good news he means to tell them, he reaches back into the Old Testament. He reaches back to Isaiah, and he reaches back to Malachi and the preparations that God was making all along for this Messiah. And he reminds the people who are reading that the Messiah would be preceded by a messenger. That that messenger would be a voice in the wilderness crying out to prepare the way of the Messiah. And the messenger comes. And the messenger's name is John. Now John lived in the wilderness. And he wore weird clothes. And he had a weird diet. And he came preaching a weird message. He said to the people who had always been the chosen people of God, the people who had the covenants, the people who had the patriarchs, the people who had the priesthood, the people who had the sacrificial system, what he said to them was, you need forgiveness for your sins. Despite all of these religious things that you have, you do not have forgiveness and you do not have cleansing. It has never been enough and you need to be washed. And so lots of people were going to John to confess their sins and be symbolically washed to signify their forgiveness. Now, side note, a lot of times this baptism of John is portrayed as the full submersion or immersion of the person in water. I mean, I'm not going to say that that's not possible, uh, but what I would say is that it's unlikely uh, because this was for the people of Israel a cleansing and the only way that they would recognize it is if it 
as a spiritual cleansing as if it mirrored and paralleled the cleansings that they had had all throughout the Old Testament, which were not by immersion or submersion, but by sprinkling and pouring, whether with hyssop or water or blood. In fact, Hebrews calls the the sprinkling that Moses did of the blood and hyssop on the book of the law and on the people, his baptisms, his washings. And so what is likely happening is that John is standing in the Jordan River, and when people come to him, he ceremonially washes them as they would do with the pots and the book of the law and all those things so that they can be uh, ritualistically cleaned, and he does the same thing to them by pouring or sprinkling water on them for the cleansing, symbolic cleansing from their sins. John told the people, however, that their confession and their cleansing were not enough to take away their sins. You need to confess your sins. You need to receive forgiveness of your sins. You need to be baptized and symbolically washed, but it's not going to be enough. Just like the sacrifices weren't enough, just like the priesthood wasn't enough, just like the temple wasn't enough, just like the prophets weren't enough, just like the promises for you weren't enough, you need something greater. And that's good news, because after me, there's going to be a preacher who is mightier than I and so worthy that I cannot even get down and tie his shoelaces. And while I baptize with water, symbolically, as a picture, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. I baptize you symbolically and ceremonially. He will wash you truly. And really, from all unrighteousness. Preparation. Second thing we see is that Jesus' ministry starts with affirmation. Jesus' ministry starts with affirmation. Look at verse 9 through 11. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately... He saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. And what we know is that though John was proclaiming a baptism of repentance, that Jesus did not need to repent. Amen? Jesus was absolutely morally perfect from the time of his conception all the way through his resurrection and remains so. Otherwise, there is no hope for us. Jesus is absolutely holy and perfect and righteousness. And that is beautiful. But what that means is that this particular baptism is unique in all of redemptive history because it is not a baptism of repentance and it's not a Christian baptism. So what is happening in Jesus' baptism? Well, in the other Gospels, there's this exchange between John and Jesus where, where John sees Jesus coming And Jesus says, I want to be baptized by you. And John goes, "Uh, me? And Jesus says, yes. And John says, no, I need to be baptized by you, not you by me. And Jesus says, let it be so, for it is fitting to fulfill all righteousness. Jesus' baptism was the initiation of his ministry to us as our ultimate prophet, priest, and king. He was ceremonially cleansed by the sprinkling of clean water like the Levite priests all the way back in Numbers 8. And the Holy Spirit descends on him in this affirmation from the Father, from heaven, as the clouds are ripped open. And, and I just, this is a callback from Mark, all the way back, from Mark 1 all the way back to Genesis chapter 1. 
In Genesis chapter 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was formless and void, and a great darkness covered it, and the Spirit of God hovered over the water. In creation, we see the Trinity at work, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And what is the Spirit doing? The Spirit is resting over the water in creation. What is happening at Jesus' baptism? Father, Son, and Spirit are present, and the Spirit is resting over the waters in new creation. Jesus is inaugurating new creation at his baptism, and God the Father announces his affirmation of and pleasure in Jesus. And after this event, there is absolutely no question about who Jesus is for everyone that was present there. Preparation and affirmation. The third thing we see is that Jesus' ministry starts with temptation. Jesus' ministry starts with temptation. Look at verses 12 and 13. The Spirit, the same Spirit that just descended on Jesus in the affirmation of the Father, the Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Just as it was necessary for Jesus to be baptized in order to fulfill all righteousness for us, it was also necessary that he be tempted in every way as we are. Hebrews 2 says that he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that, having suffered when tempted, he can minister to those. He can help those who are being tempted. Preparation. Affirmation. Temptation. The fourth thing that we see is that Jesus' ministry starts with proclamation. Look at verses 14 and 15. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Jesus begins his ministry and establishes his ministry first and foremost, as a preaching ministry. And perhaps more than anything else in the Scriptures, even that admonition from James that you who are teachers, brother, uh, not many of you should be teachers because teachers are going to be judged more strictly. That scares me. But the fact that Jesus himself established his ministry as a preaching ministry makes me tremble like nothing else when I stand up here before you. He has good news to announce to his people. He is bringing God's kingdom near. He is inaugurating new creation. And so what is the logical response of people who are sinners before a holy God when the gospel of good news, of forgiveness of sins, is announced to them by the one who provides it? Repent and believe the gospel. Preparation, affirmation, temptation, proclamation. Fifthly, Uh, we see that Jesus' ministry starts with invitation. Invitation. Look at verses 16 through 20. Passing along the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. Jesus comes inviting 
people to follow him. And who does he choose? Does he choose the, the powerful? Does he choose the influential? Does he choose the, the well-educated and those who are firmly established in the community? No. He goes to the Sea of Galilee and calls blue-collar workers, fishermen. You know how hard it is to get a blue-collar man to stop working? But the Lord of all creation, when he says, follow me, Mark says, immediately, they dropped their nets, they left their livelihood, and they followed Jesus. Because in that moment, when they met the King, the Christ, the Lord, the Savior, they no longer wanted to be fishermen of fish. They wanted to be, like him, fishers of men. Preparation, affirmation, temptation, proclamation, and invitation. And finally, we see that Jesus' ministry starts with demonstration. Jesus' ministry starts with demonstration. Look at verses 21 through 45. And they went into Capernaum. And immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And immediately there was in the synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout the surrounding region of Galilee. And immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her. And he came up and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve them. That evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons, and the whole city was gathered together at the door, and he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons, and he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him, and they found him and said, Everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, Let us go on to the next towns, that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. And a leper came to him, imploring him, and kneeling, said to him, If you will, you can make me clean. Moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him, and he was made clean. And Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once and said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest, and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded for a proof to them. But he went out and began to talk freely about it and spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town, but was out in desolate places, and people were coming to him from every quarter." Jesus' ministry starts with demonstration. He validates the truth of his identity as Christ and Lord and God, as the Messiah, 
and the message of good news that he proclaims by demonstrating his power and authority over the supernatural world and the natural world. He encounters a man in the synagogue who has a demon, who has an unclean spirit, who cries out seeking to uh, stay in the man so that he can afflict the man. And Jesus says, be silent, get out of him. Jesus demonstrates that he is Lord over all things supernatural. That There is nothing outside of his control that even the unclean spirits, the people say, obey him. And then they go to Simon's house, and Simon's mother-in-law is not feeling well. And so they tell Jesus about it, and he goes and takes her hand, lifts her up, and what happens? The fever, which I'm sure she got naturally, leaves her. Jesus has power. They begin to bring him all the sick people and all those who are oppressed by demons because Jesus is Lord both over the natural and the supernatural. And then also we see here a demonstration of his compassion and his love in the account with the leper. He's out in desolate places because he's become famous and he can't go anywhere in Galilee without people clamoring for him to do something for them. And this leper goes out to the desolate places. In fact, he was probably already there because he was an outcast from society because of his disease. He seeks Jesus out and he implores him and he kneels before him and says, if you are willing, you can make me clean. He recognizes Jesus for who he is and Jesus responds, I will out of deep love and compassion for the man, the scripture says, moved with pity. He stretched out his hand. Y'all, the holy God who created the universe reaches out his hand and touches a man with leprosy and makes him clean. Preparation, affirmation, temptation, proclamation, invitation, demonstration. That's how Jesus' ministry starts. The other question is, why does it matter how Jesus' ministry starts? Well, it matters that there was preparation because the world was not ready for Jesus until he came. That's what the Apostle Paul means in Galatians 4.4 when he says, When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son. Until this moment in history, no one would have responded to Jesus as the Christ. They wouldn't have known him. They wouldn't have recognized him. They wouldn't have bowed the knee to him. They wouldn't have received him. All of human history was preparation for all of creation and all of God's image bearers, human beings, for Jesus and for the redemption that he brings. And that's true of you, too. The story of the Old Testament we often read as completely divorced from our reality, but the story of God's people in the Old Testament is your story if you are Jesus' follower. He is your Messiah, every bit as he is Abraham's Messiah. And the whole world was being prepared right up to this very minute for Jesus to come and do what he did so that in your time in history for which you have been prepared and it for you, you could respond to his gospel in repentance and faith. It matters that there was affirmation because in Jesus' baptism, his identity is made known to us. And for the first time in the scriptures, we have this explicit presentation of all three persons of the Trinity. You have the Father declaring his approval and pleasure in the Son. You have the Spirit descending on the Son. And you have the Son walking away from being baptized. And these beautiful words of affirmation from Father to Son. You are 
my son, my beloved son, with you, I am well pleased. I'll tell you why that matters for us. Because what Jesus came to do was to serve as our substitute so that what is true of him may be true of us. Now, we're not God, and we never will be God, but what Jesus came to do was live the life that we, couldn't li- that, he, that we could not live so that we could receive his righteous record in place of our sinful one, to die the death that we deserve so that we would never have to face God's condemnation and the death and hell that we deserve for eternity, to rise again from the dead in victory over sin and Satan and death and hell. And having done all those things for all who believe, we are placed in him by faith. And if we are in Christ, this affirmation of him, you are my beloved son, in you, with you I am well pleased. This affirmation of Christ becomes God's also affirmation of his people. You are his beloved child. In Christ, with you, he is well pleased. It matters that there was temptation Because Jesus had to fulfill all righteousness by saying no to every temptation that we experience so that we might be given his perfect record in place of our sinful one. And I love the fact that that God the Father's affirmation comes before Jesus' temptation. Because it is the Spirit who drives Jesus out into the wilderness. The same Spirit that is the sign of the Father's affirmation of him. You are my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And it is the Father's affirmation that empowers Jesus by the Spirit to fast for 40 days and 40 nights and to rebuke Satan every time Satan tries to misuse God's word with God's true word. Why does that matter for us? Because God's affirmation of us in Christ is our greatest weapon against temptation. God's affirmation of us in Christ is our greatest weapon against temptation. We don't fight sin so that the Lord will approve us. We fight sin because the Lord has already approved us in Christ. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. Because my sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. Martin Luther was often afflicted by the demonic. And demons or the devil would come to him and accuse him of his sin. Uh, The devil would say to Martin Luther, you are a terrible and disgusting sinner. And Martin Luther said, yes, I am. What of it? For I know the one who loved me and made satisfaction on my behalf so that where he is, there I may be also. Away with you. It matters that there was proclamation. Because all of the hope that people need in this world and for eternity is found in Christ alone. And if we are going to connect people with that hope, like Jesus, we must proclaim him. It matters that there was invitation. And that that invitation was extended to the unlikely because Jesus still calls disciples. Do you follow him? And lastly, it matters that there was a demonstration 
of Jesus' power and love because we are the afflicted. We are the sinful. We are the leper. Because of our sin, because of our rebellion, because of our rejection of God and his authority over us and his holiness on display in all of creation, we stand condemned by the law before God. And Jesus looks on us with pity, with compassion, with a heart full of love. We must be like the leper. We must come before the Lord Jesus Christ and say, if you will, you will make me clean. And to everyone who has ever said that, and everyone who ever will say that, Jesus says, I will be cleansed. For now, indeed, I find thy power and thine alone can change the leper's spots, can melt this heart of stone. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. To all of you who have heard and responded to the Lord Jesus Christ and his declaration of the good news of the kingdom that he himself brought through his life and his death and his resurrection. His invitation to you is to come to his table, hear, see, touch, smell, taste the gospel, and feed on him. Let's pray and ask the Lord's blessing on our time together around his table. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you instituted this sacrament for us to be a means of grace for us, to be a memorial to you for what you did, a remembrance of your sacrifice on the cross, to be a family meal around which the people of God gather regularly to celebrate the good news of the gospel, to be the message of the gospel to our eyes and to our ears and to our mouths and to our sense of touch. Lord, I ask for your blessing on this time. I ask that for those who belong to you in this room that they would truly be able to taste and see that the Lord is good. And Lord, if there are any in our midst this morning who do not yet know you, I pray that even now this table would be a proclamation of who you are and of what you have done, so that they may know the forgiveness of their sins, adoption into your family, and eternal life.